Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. This is a show that helps you become a more effective student, and today, well, I just got to tell you, I love this episode. I really, really love it, but it's not one that I can market very well. I can't really sell it. Yes, I called it How Long Should It Take to Get Good at My Job, but that's just one question, one little tiny part of the episode and uh, the rest of it's really quite different. This is a long conversation that jumps randomly between a lot of different topics, goes off on tangents, down rabbit holes, jumps from layer to layer to layer, and uh, we're off in the weeds at many different points. And to be honest, that's the kind of podcast episode that I really love. I feel like I learn best sometimes just by having interesting conversations with smart people. And as of late, all the podcasts I've been listening to, shows like uh, Hello Internet with Brady Heron and CGP Grey, and Cortex, which is also CGP Grey, but talking with Mike Hurley, um, those kind of podcasts kind of emulate that for me. It's just conversations between people who have interesting points of view and smart things and lots of experience. So I'm happy to have another episode of the podcast that sort of brings that type of conversation onto my show. The first episode on this show that I can point to that's really got that kind of an element to it was episode 50 with Satchel Drakes, who is a YouTuber and one of my biggest video influences. And um, this is another episode like that. In my defense, though, I did go into this episode with a mission in mind, and I want to kind of explain it to you because it does take a while to get into the topics that I'm purporting that we're talking about here. So over a year ago, I read a blog post. I think I found it on Hacker News, which is uh, Y Combinator's basically like Reddit-like news site for startup and tech things. And the blog post is called You Must Try and Then You Must Ask. And it was written by a guy named Matt Ringel, who is a senior network architect at a company called Akamai Technologies. And they're a huge uh, tech content delivery network provider in Massachusetts, like A lot of the internet has bits and pieces of it that are run through this company. Huge company. And in this post, Matt was describing a rule that his company has for when you get stuck on a tough problem. It's called the 15-minute rule, and it's pretty simple. So basically what it is is when you get stuck on a problem, you have to work on the problem for an additional 15 minutes. And during that 15 minutes, really what you want to do is do your best to document every aspect of the problem, document ways to reproduce any errors you're running into, just basically make it so that somebody else can understand what's going on. And after that 15 minutes is up, at this point, you must ask somebody for help. You can't bang your head against it anymore. So it's a rule that really encourages digging in and doing some critical thinking when the going gets tough, but also is built to ensure that you're not wasting your time and wasting the company's time. And I absolutely love this rule because it it reminds me of something called the Corson Technique. Now, if you've seen probably my most popular video, Uh, I can't predict what my most popular video will be in the future, but as of now, my most popular video is eight advanced study tips, and one of those is to use this Corson technique. I also talk about it in my book. Dale Corson, one of the deans of Cornell University, once said that uh, when you go to a professor and you don't know what to do on your homework, you shouldn't just have a general wave of the hand and say, I don't know what I'm doing. You should be able to point exactly to where you're having a problem. You should show that you understand everything up in to that point, and maybe that you even understand things after that, but that way you can show the professor that you've really put in some groundwork and really thought about the problem instead of just giving up and raising your hand for help at the first sign of trouble, which is what I see so many students do. I saw so many students do that in classes during my college career. The moment anything gets tough, they would raise their hands. I remember there was one story 
and I feel like I'm going to make this a really long intro, but I want to tell it anyway. When I was a uh, orientation assistant, I was during the summer, I was helping the new freshmen who were coming in sign up for classes and generally get acclimated to the university. And the way we had people sign up for classes, it was is we set up a computer lab and they came in. And at this point, they already had their student ID. They already had a password. They could log in. At this point, they just had to log into the system and pick the classes they wanted. So up on the whiteboard, I had step-by-step instructions. Number one, log in with your NetID. In parentheses, directly below that, your NetID is the first part of your ISU email address. Don't put the at isstate.edu part, but the rest of that, that's your NetID. And I cannot tell you how many people came in, looked at the board, read, put in your NetID, and immediately hand shot up, what's my NetID? Because they weren't willing to think for a couple of seconds when they didn't know something. So I love this 15-minute rule. It really encourages digging in and solving problems for yourself while not wasting too much time. So my mission going into the episode was this. I wanted to talk with Matt and go a little bit deeper into the 15-minute rule, get some more in-depth perspective on how his company uses it, and just kind of get some more insight on how you can go in-depth on problems and really work to solve them. Secondly, because of the email conversation we had leading up to this episode, I also wanted to ask him, being somebody who's pretty high up in his company, uh, I wanted to ask him about a question that I get a lot from students doing internships and also recent grads who are doing their first full-time jobs, which is, how long should it take to get good at my job? Because I feel like I'm out of my depth right now and I'm worried that my boss is probably going to fire me because I'm terrible at my job. That's a really common thing. I remember when I got my first job at the web development, it wasn't my first job, uh, it was my first web development job though. I got hired at the web development uh, department on campus and I'm a little bit distracted right now because one of my LEDs on my keyboard is flickering. I think this one might be finally dying. But yeah, I moved from the tech support department, which I was very good at, to the web development department, which I found that I was insanely out of my depth when I started working there. And my first three months were literally come in, clock in, go through a PHP coding book and just teach myself tutorials. And I didn't really provide much value to the company at all. So this is something I felt and something that most students who go into jobs after college find out. They're out of their depth. They're not very useful to the company. And they're wondering how long are they going to tolerate the fact that I'm not useful yet? You know, at what point do I need to be really competent? So I want to ask Matt about that. He has a good answer to that. So this episode holds a lot of insight for that question. It holds some in-depth insight about the 15-minute rule. But along the way, you're going to get a long conversation that touches on all sorts of things, how our brains learn, piece together information, all those tangents like I talked about. That's what this conversation is. I hope you enjoy it. I don't know if this podcast is going to have a whole lot of episodes like this, but I know that I love episodes like these. And if you do enjoy this episode, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment or tweet me. I'm Tom Frankly on Twitter. And uh, also, if you like this episode, you'll probably like shows like Hello Internet and uh, Cortex. So episode 86, this is the number for this episode. You can find the show notes over at CIGpodcast.com. Find the episode 86 link on the page. Otherwise, if you've been enjoying the show up to this point, if you want to leave a rating or review on iTunes, that would be excellent of you to do. Definitely not an obligation, though. So that's all I'm going to do for this ramblingly long intro. Let's get into this ramblingly long conversation with Matt Ringel.
Hello. Hello. How's it going, dude? Huh. Awake, alive, in one piece, not on fire, just like it says on the box. Is that what it says? Uh, that's what it says on uh, the uh, status. Yeah. It's been a, it's a good day. Is it? Get to be a grumpy bearded man who, get grumpy bearded man who runs the internet. <laughs> have you ever heard the joke that uh, like everybody else on the internet is one guy? I have not heard that one. Oh, it's, it's there's somebody drew a t-shirt and there's just like one dude and like 400 monitors around him. <laughs> it's like everybody else on the internet is just one dude. <laughs> well, you know, the saying is that, uh, I mean, I've heard that, I've heard, the, well, that, that's a good one, but I've also heard the, uh, you know, if people knew how the internet was actually put together, nobody would use it for anything. <laughs> but that is what I do, among many, many other things. Uh, that's basically all I do. <laughs> I just I just do stuff on the internet and hope people like it. Well, it appears that you've gotten some traction from what it looks like. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say that's going okay for you. It's, yeah, it's going all right. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. Though the, the blog post in question that I wanted to talk with you about, uh, that got some traction of its own, didn't it? Because that was like pretty high up on Hacker News, and I think that's how I found it, right? Um, that sounds right. So it hit number one on Hacker News, I'm pretty sure, like number two, mm. something like that. It got, you know, umpty mentions on Twitter. It was it was on the Akamai blog. It was actually pointed to from the Akamai blog. Okay. Um, and it got... Um, tens of thousands of hits, nice. if not more. Um, it, it was the most hit article on the Akamai blog for a while. I got to talk for marketing people and say, so how this doing? They're like, whoa, we've <laughs> people read your stuff. Keep so, writing. Hey, and you know, you're no longer a sysadmin. You're now our marketing director. Yeah, exactly. I haven't been a sysadmin for years. Networks, man. It's all about the networks. Oh, you do network stuff now? Yeah, I do network stuff. Okay. Uh, senior, senior network architect for Akamai Technologies. Gotcha. I was I was in uh, professional services for about four years and then moved back to the network side because, well, I like dealing with big problems. And, well, there's people problems. There's network problems. They're problems. They're complex. People are complex. Networks are complex. I'm good. But that mostly a lot of it is about just making sure how people can work together better. Mm-hmm. And talking about the, you know, what does it mean for professional services to be more efficient? That's where the whole, the big blog post came from. That's where that all came from. Yeah. So before we get started here. Sure. Um, do you have headphones, by the way? Um, I do. Okay. Actually. I think I can hear my voice coming out of your speakers every once in a while. And sometimes okay. it'll feed back into your microphone. Roger that. So let me uh, grab my headphones. I'll okay. Right all right. Perfect. Now we match. Excellent. <laughs> what kind of cans do you use? I I used to have a ton of them. Um, these are ATH M50s from Audio Technica. All right. And then I do also have probably one of the last remaining pairs of the old Sony Super Bassy XB500s. Oh, nice. Which I love them. Uh, and then they like they came out with some new inferior edition a couple of years ago, and you can't get these ones anymore. So I baby them. <laughs> I it's my third pair, actually. <laughs> no, no, I, I totally get that. I have a using a set of uh, Ultrasone uh, seven eighty HFIs. Ultrasone, Ultrasone, uh, mm-hmm. German um, German brand. Um, I was just looking for a set of headphones. I need closed cans for yeah. the office, and just looked around and hey, these are kind of less known name that 
really, really high quality, really not sold in the U.S. all that much, and these were a discontinued brand. The, the specific model was discontinued. Amazon had two left at 100 bucks off. I'm like, okay, sure, I'll do that. That's fine. Which model was it again? Uh, HFI 780, Ultra S-O-N-E. Okay. Looks like they had the HFI 580 is still on sale. Yeah. Uh, oh, the 780 is still there too, but they're closer to 200 now. Yeah. Weird yeah, that I haven't heard of those. I used to like just crawl through the Head5 forums when I was trying to research all the best ones. <laughs> this is what I do. I get an obsession and then that's like all consuming for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and then like I get bored of it and I'll sell off all the gear that I bought. But now I have all this like useless knowledge. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, you, you do actually get to be non-sarcastically fun at parties. It's true. You know, and that, that counts for a lot. It's the, you know, you could talk, hey, you know, like, hey, you're looking for headphones. If you're interested, there's a couple of things I could talk with you about. You know, it's just the, you know, so much cocktail chatter is just this, how much knowledge do you have that links to other knowledge that you can actually show people connections between things and have interesting discussions on? You know, because what makes for the you must be fun at parties um, really, really kind of boorish stuff is when someone goes deep dive on a particular topic and nobody gets any warning about it. <laughs> and they're all just kind of staring like, um, that's um, you're acknowledging at me, dude. That's that's not cool. Have you so, ever read anything by Neil Stevenson? Oh, many, many things. <laughs> um, I feel like yeah, that's, that's like the cocktail party equivalent of his writing. Here's an info dump on uh, Mesopotamian religion. Bet you weren't <laughs> expecting that, but now you're going to get it. <laughs> and now Captain Crunch. That's right. <laughs> I, I will say Reem D. Reem D. I, he used to be on my buy site on scene list, but after mm. Reem D, I don't know if because that was you know Neil Stevenson does Tom Clancy. Yes. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't know how I felt about that. I, I Seven Eves is on the list though. So I have uh, to admit, I have only yeah. read Snow Crash and The Diamond Age in addition to, in the beginning, there was a command line. Yeah. Uh, and I'm about 200 pages into Cryptonomicon, but I oh. found that, like, because my knowledge of weird military terminology is lacking, it's like I have to look up a word every five seconds. So it's really <laughs> slow going. And I've been warned that um, the Baroque cycle is even worse. Like, oh, people yes. have said, you need to go read, like, the Peeps letters and basically, like, take a... 1600s British history class before you try to read that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's that. There's also then Anathem, which gets even weirder in a bunch of ways. Is um, it? See, I was like holding out hope that Anathem would be like go back to Diamond Age where I could just kind of read through it because it was all made up. Oh, no, no. The, no, the, I, I take that back. What I'm saying is Anathem is because it's a synthesized world, but kind of next door in a lot of ways. It's really, really interesting. And it does actually go back to kind of the Snow Crash Diamond Age. You can read all the way through this thing. You don't need a course in whatever in order to read it. It's actually quite good. Okay. Um, Seven Eves, from what I've heard, it's the... Yeah, did you ever read Dune? I haven't. Uh, uh, I did a video about my favorite fiction books, and it was like all yeah. sci-fi fantasy, and then like everyone in the comments like, why haven't you read Dune yet? Come on, dude. <laughs> and I, I have it in an audiobook, and I have it on my shelf, and I just haven't gotten to it. Yeah. Dune is, I, I'm a sucker for world building. Like, you can build mm. cardboard characters, but if you give me a good, consistent world that they <laughs> live in, I will give you a lot of slack. And mm. and um, Dune is just, I mean, it's good characters and an amazing, deep, deep, deep world. I think so, that uh, you and I are pretty similar with what we want out of fiction. I'm kind <laughs> of the same. Like, 
give me a really intricate scientific magic system or a really fleshed out world and I don't care yeah. if the characters are Gary Sue or something like just <laughs> have him do cool things within and like explain everything that's weird and complex oh yeah like uh, Brendan Sanderson writes a ton of books like that yeah uh, just finished one of his which one uh, the latest Mistborn book all right Shout yeah. out I, I read Warbreaker and what's funny is on the Kindle which is where I read most of my genre fiction now um, there's notes for every chapter that actually go into the mechanics of how he wrote it, saying, now I'm going to introduce this character. Now, or, or a few pages later, you might wonder what happened to this character over here. Well, now I have to bring them back so you remember it, and I have to reveal this extra thing about the magic system so that in chapter 10, you're going to see it again. And it's just this, like, craft. I mean, the stories are kind of craftsman-like, what have you, but it's mm-hmm. all about, you know, building something around a magic system. In Warbreaker in specific, he actually gave detailed notes for the mechanics of how he wrote the story. That's really um, interesting. On the, Kindle, on the Kindle, at least. I think I'm going to have to try that out then. Um, I, I would be really curious to see, and if I could like somehow weasel my way into just like hanging out with Brandon Sanderson for a day, I would love to pick <laughs> his brain. I, basically, I want to say, like, show me your notes, because you are trying to build this entire interconnected universe through like that spans I don't even know how many series and mm-hmm. they all interconnect and like have I don't even know it's like as complex as Magic the Gather I feel like my my suspicion my crazy conspiracy theory is that Brandon Sanderson is trying to construct a universe so complex that somebody goes and makes a Magic the Gathering competitor for him inside of his universe <laughs> because I know he's a magic nerd oh really and okay. I know like the MTG lore is pretty ridiculous so I would bet that he's just like waiting for somebody to take his thing and <laughs> Wow. MTG. I haven't touched MTG in a long time. So um and this will belie a little bit of how old I am. Um so um the Columbia University Games Club, which I was a member of, um, ran the first citywide first New York Citywide Magic the Gathering tournament um at Columbia in uh, 1993 or four. Oh wow. And I actually got to run the auction. Really? That. that was, it was pretty awesome. Like I, I, you know, and everything's in, you know, little plastic sleeves and there I have a full set of moxes. <laughs> alpha moxes, sitting alpha? In front of me, alpha moxes sitting in front of me going, okay. Um, the person who consigned them said, I want them sold off one at a time because they'll fetch more money that way. Mm. And so I started selling them, and they went for 150 to 175 a pop, and that was in 1993 dollars. So you figure that's 225, 250 now. When did Alpha first come out? Alpha was, I want to say it had to be like 89. Okay, I didn't realize it was that long. I didn't realize that the the moxes were that valuable that early. Oh well, the thing about moxes is they are immediate cheap mana. It's true. It, I guess it, I didn't realize the game itself had so much monetary value in individual cards that early on in its life. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, that was kind of the... I mean, this was... You want to talk about a fad, like tulip bubble kind of thing. This was... So um, the complete the complete strategist, you know, big gaming store in New York City, set up like right outside the area where we had everybody playing, and they were able to sell cards, which is fine. And... Uh, Kids were buying booster packs, shuffling through, and, like, finding rares and selling them back. Just on the spot? Just on the spot. (laughs) 
okay, that that that's that's a nightmare. That's ten dollars. Okay, fine. Buy another couple of boosters. It was just the freakiest thing. I've only had one instance in my my very short, to be honest, MTG career where that's anything like that has happened. <laughs> when uh, oh man, I can't even remember the names of the sets, but I got like a Burmaz. He's like a lion god okay. and like. Target always does this thing where they they like never listen to wizards and they're just like screw you we're gonna we're gonna put like the new release on the shelf two days early. <laughs> they consistently do this, so I show up at Target and I'm like those aren't supposed to be out. Gonna buy a few packs anyway. Pull one that's like a thirty five dollar card. It's like all right, take it back to the shop. This won't fit in any of my decks. Give me thirty five dollars. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's really magic is. It's it's really brilliant how they kept. I mean, so keep in mind, eighty nine, you're creeping up on thirty years. You're creeping yeah, up you're on right. 30, you're, so you're twenty five, twenty six years now of magic, and they've kept the game vaguely balanced. Yeah, for twenty six years with constant new additions. That's brilliant. And I mean, they, they've even kept it vaguely, sort of, kind of balanced within the confines of like legacy and stuff. I mean certainly not to the same extent as you get with standard, but it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing how consistent they've been able to be. Oh yeah. Many cards. It, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. You know, I've played, I played it, <clears throat> I've played it on the iPad. It's just at some point it's the, someone handed me a few decks of it. I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm going to lose this moving from place to place. I moved to Boston about, you know, 19 years ago now. And, you know, as someone who, who hates moving, but moved nine times, <laughs> it's very much a you know these these are just going to get lost. These are going to get lost and broken. I'm going to give to someone who's actually going to play with them, mm. and that will be just you know how much money those are. Nothing to me. <laughs> um, and so and someone else got and someone else got it. So it was all good. It was all good. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a very very interesting thing in building the worlds and what have you. Okay. Awesome. Uh, but awesome. you were saying that you are a network. Seamer Network Administrator, you said? Um, senior Network Architect. Archi- okay, so you're building networks. You're not just fiddling I'm, I'm around t- with already set up networks. That's part of it. I mean, a lot of it is um, helping to design networks. A lot of it is, um, in this, in a lot of cases, helping to make the engineering decisions or policy decisions in a lot of cases beyond, you know, behind what we build, where we build, and so on and so forth. Mm. And... Then, you know, talking with larger network partners and working with them on working with them on how we want to build with them. So, yeah, it's very much a it's a very, very big picture kind of job. Okay, Um, but you still have to have, you know, details about, well, how does you know, how do we get bandwidth into the platform? How do we how do how do we get stuff going? Because um Depend, you know, because Akamai is set up as all these little islands all over the internet, um, all these clusters all over the internet, and so there's no backbone. So what does it mean when you have all these little clusters that write on top of other people's networks all over the backbone? And the answer is you have to talk with everybody and you have to work with everybody. Yeah. And so it's this very, very and – it, and it's great because you get to talk with so many people who have so many different views of how you run a network and – who all have slightly different priorities. We're all on the same page at the end of the day. And it's just a great feeling to know it's like, okay, we're going to make this work for everybody. And to some extent, that's what I did in professional services before, where it's the, where I'm talking with um, Akamai's content customers because we do content distribution network and just saying, okay, let's figure out how we're going to make this work for you. Let's figure out how we're going to make this great. 
let's let's figure out how you are going to make more money by having a better performing website. Okay. And when you sit on the when you sit on the same side of the table from somebody as opposed to the opposite side of the table, and it's I realize that's a little bit hokey way to put it, but by sitting next to them and saying we're going to work together on that thing over there, it just changes it. it um, one of the things that we did in uh, new hire training, which is what the fifteen minute rule came out of. Mm. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we did in new hire training was the whiteboards um, on my website, mattringle.com, what WordPress blog thing. Um, I actually talk about this chronicle of the whiteboards. The whiteboards were effectively a interactive oral exam where you were told, okay, you are the first, the first Akamai person post-sales that this person is seeing. You need to talk on this topic. And you have these details about the customers. You have 45 minutes to go. And that customer may be hostile. You know, there may be somebody in the room who doesn't actually want the answer to a question, but is just, just trying to get status with their peers. And you have to find your way out, and they're going to try to drive you into a rat hole and try to distract you from what you're trying to talk about. And you have to learn how to control a conversation. So it's this very, it's this very interesting combination of organizing technical knowledge in your head, building the technical knowledge yourself, understanding how it all integrates, because all the memorization in the world will not help you which is actually helping me in terms of learning languages. You know, that's the reason why learning grammar rules doesn't actually help. Yeah. You actually have to, you have to have enough examples that you can actually figure out what's going on when you're trying to learn a language. Right. So that you can connect it all. I mean, there's the reason that, <laughs> that there's the reason that I have a small stack of Harry Potter books in Spanish sitting, sitting next to my nightstand. <laughs> I've uh, got one in Japanese. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Nice. I can kind of read it. It's, My roommate yeah. is a huge Spanish nerd, and he's also got Harry Potter in Spanish. Well, that, that's the great thing about Harry Potter is that it has reliably good translations. Oh, yeah. Pretty much every major language and even a few not-so-major languages you can think of. So um, when, you know, Harry Potter, Evan Chachem, um, being the, 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 uh, the Hebrew one, or... You know, Harry Potter Pietra Filosofal being the, the Spanish one. And so it, it's um, it's a very, very EL Pietra Filosofal. I'm not that good yet. <laughs> so <clears throat> the point is that tying it back to tying it back to tying it back, because there's totally a stack-based conversation, is you have to tie all the knowledge together, otherwise it's never gonna hold together in your head. And yeah. so when talking about first whiteboards, when you have to actually hang this knowledge together in your head somehow so you can talk about it extemporaneously because you need to know you need to know things to a 10-foot depth in order to teach them to a 3-foot depth in general. Mm. And because you're going to be asked questions that you don't know the answers to. Um, and so you have to keep the amount of topic matter and abstraction pretty tightly bounded so that even if they ask you weird things, that's still somewhere within your depth. Right. And and then taking that all back and saying, you know, first whiteboards and then talking to customers where they're going to ask you weird screwball questions about, well, what happens in this case? And sometimes the answer is going to be, that's a great question. I don't want to give you a wrong answer. I don't know. I'm going to find out for you. And that's okay. But you can't do that all the time or else they lose confidence in you. It's like, why did I can just have a shell script that says, I don't want to give you a wrong answer. <laughs> What, what am I paying for? 
So just an eight ball they're carrying around. I've I've done that. So <laughs> they cost less. <laughs> they totally cost less. <laughs> um, I, I I did once tell like a. <laughs> Well, how do we do this? Answer hazy. Try again later, <laughs> fifteen minutes after I read the manual, and and so hanging this all together in your head then turns into well, how do you build that network of ideas? How do you build the the that intuition, which then ties back into something like the fifteen minute rule, where you actually get to start talking about okay. How do you, because one of the sneaky things that comes out of the 15 minute rule, which I know you've talked about and you've seen in the past, is um, how do you, you know, so first saying that it's once you feel that you're completely stuck in making no forward progress, take 15 minutes. Hmm. Uh, take 15 minutes to document and then you must get help, is to then say, what is the best way that I can actually start organizing things in my brain to actually talk about this subject? Yeah. And that's huge. How do I build this network of information? Because when you're debugging something, you're following this blind alley and that blind alley and that blind alley, and soon enough, they start to link up. But that's no guarantee they're going to link up to a solution. It just means you're building another construct inside your head. By forcing yourself to go and then stopping and saying, now I'm actually going to consolidate that construct for 15 minutes of documentation is the way that you get to that key next step in maybe solving the problem if you know you you know the term rubber duck debugging I don't actually all right so rubber duck debugging is <clears throat> it, it's an interesting little mental trick because humans are fun is you take a rubber duck you know you're really stuck on a problem you take a rubber ducky or you know your favorite thing that you feel you can talk to oh. preferably the face and you tell it the problem okay i've you heard this before actually yeah, you tell it the problem, and every now and then, on an uncannily often basis, you will get the answer. Mm. You didn't involve another human. You didn't look at anything new. Everything was already in your head, but you had to tell it to a rubber duck. Now, m- what mechanically is happening there? Um, yeah, because okay. you're changing context to I'm no longer trying to find the the answer to the problem myself, I've now switched the context to I need to teach the fundamentals of the problem and all the parameters to uh, an inanimate object that is very stupid. You got it. You got it. That's part of it. You know, explain to me like I'm a rubber duck. Um, E-L-I-R-D, whatever. Um, you know, explain to me like I'm a rubber duck, but also that you're forcing it through your speech center. And unlike mm. your And unlike your brain, which can travel in 15 different directions at once, Speech only comes out one word at a time, unless there's surgery involved. So <laughs> um, what you end up with is being able to, you're, you're forcing it through a very specific, very linear modality. And by forcing it into, and you have to linearize the way you talk about the problem. And if nothing else, that forces you to organize it a completely different way. Same thing with documentation. By actually having to write things down, you force yourself onto one train of thought because no one else is going to be able to read this because remember, you're going to hand it off to somebody. It's not enough that you document it and then take a break and then come back to it. You have to hand it off to somebody else because you have to write for an audience Mm. Um, because that's what forces you to be at least somewhat coherent. So do you almost feel like you couldn't fake this exercise? You couldn't like 
pretend that you're going to give it to somebody else and then try to write it out? Like you need to actually give it to somebody? Well, that's a good question. I think that what you find more often than not is you can pretend. <clears throat> and maybe if you're really good at documentation, if you're really good at technical writing, then you probably could, or you probably could make a first cut at it. Mm. But if you're not trained in doing documentation and you're not trained in technic- technical writing, and let's be honest, that's practically all of us. Yeah. Because that is a skill. It is a real, separate, learnable, teachable, independent skill. It's a major at my school. Oh, yeah. You, you can imagine. It's just like that. So if you say this is a skill, then <clears throat> what you end up with is you have to you have to kind of teach yourself a little bit of how to document something. Mm. And the easiest way to do that is to get, you know, someone who's going to say who wrote this crap to you. <laughs> and if you're willing to risk someone saying, I, I, why, why did you, I don't even understand the words that came out of that pen. <laughs> who's responsible for this abomination? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who vomited forth these words onto this paper with this pen from hell? <laughs> and by the time you're done, you actually have this, you know, because there's that fear in you, mm-hmm. that fear that your coworkers, who you respect, I hope, think that you're a complete and utter drooling moron. And how can you even like, how, how can you like not be able to write three words together that you'll actually behave yourself and write something that is sane because in the end you want your problem solved. Right. Um, yes, I think you could kind of self-document, for lack of a better term, and then reread it yourself. And, you know, I believe it was uh, Adam Savage from Mythbusters who said the uh, difference between science and screwing around is writing it down. Hmm. But <clears throat> that, and that's the whole point of a lab notebook, right? You can't reproduce what you did unless you write it down somewhere. Right. Um, and I, I prefer to actually have a physical notebook. Okay. Uh, mostly because, A, um, my handwriting is pretty dense and pretty neat, and so I can read what I wrote afterwards. But also it means that I'm not trying to switch around windows. I'm not trying to manage my – and especially if I'm on a laptop. Like right now, I've got one screen. That's all I get. Yeah. Um, I want – I don't want to have to be – you know, while I've got this gigantic thought construct in my head, I don't want to have to be futzing with my windows. So, okay, I'll cut and paste that text to my I'll taste this thing. Or it's just easier to keep coding. You know, that's a train outside. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> welcome to East Cambridge, Massachusetts. And what you end up with is you don't want to be futzing with anything else where you've got this gigantic, very, very fragile thought construct in your head. And that means manipulating your windows because if you're anything like me, like, oh, that's mail that come in. I'll check that too. And then it all falls apart. And, all yes. goes. and so by having, you know, the resolutely non-interactive pen and paper, except for what you're writing, um, a self-directed user experience, what you end up with is being able to keep track of everything here while keeping everything, keeping your state as frozen as possible while you're trying to relate it to other people down here and then once you're done you're saying okay i got it well you're going to walk over to somebody anyway you're going to take a break that's going to fall apart a little bit in your head that's fine but now you've gotten it all written down and now you can go back and you can type it in and send them email or something yeah but the written world is written word is a very very powerful thing and actually putting pen to paper once again it's like talking to the rubber duck 
by putting pen to paper and putting in a different modality where you have to slow down and you have to write it out letter by letter, that's going to get you a pretty long way. In my opinion, it's what works for me. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of merit to writing things down. I did a video a while ago about uh, writing notes on a computer versus paper and pen. And (laughs) conclusion I come to is when I'm writing notes with a computer, I kind of just like my brain and and hands by extension become this like mediating device where the auditory signals go in fingers type words i don't really connect any of the ideas in my brain but when i'm writing it's slower so i by nature have to kind of slow down and think about what i'm writing yeah no i totally get what you're talking about there um it's it's very much a um because typing you know it's you know, I type relatively quickly. So do you probably, it's very much a, it's a skill, right? You, and, and, and theoretically it's the, okay, I'm going directly from my brain to the buffer on that screen. And that's great. It's no longer, you know, typing is not something I even think about. It's not me doing it. It's it doing itself through me. Right. And so what you end up with is, okay, I'm typing this thing out. I'm typing this thing out. I'm typing this thing out, but am I going to edit it now? You know, it's like, oh, that's not wrong. Let me go edit it. <laughs> and and once you can edit it, you know, beyond just crossing out and keep going, it really takes you out of, to, to my mind, it takes me out of, I am now manipulating the editor. I'm not getting my ideas down on paper. Mm. <clears throat> and so, I mean, when I'm writing a blog post or an essay, it's always, I'm giving myself permission to write crap. Yes, definitely. I'm, I'm just... I'm just going to keep typing. I'm not going to edit a darn thing for like a few pages. And then I will go back. I'll say, wow, that was really stupid. That's an awesome turn of phrase, <laughs> but it doesn't fit anywhere. It gets deleted. Yep. Okay. It gets saved, but it gets, you know, it, it doesn't fit here and do these things. And then I'll go back. But the idea that, um, so I used to do wedding photography a long time ago. Really? And yeah, it was a, a really, really entertaining thing. It was a lot of fun. Um, cause it's this combination of physical and mental disciplines where you are, you know, you're running around like a crazy person, especially if you're doing a photojournalistic style where, you know, you're not interfering with the event at all, except for maybe some post formals. Um, I want to put a marker at the conversation here because you okay. mentioned something I think about a lot, which is like the merger of physical and mental disciplines. Oh yeah. But yeah, I'd love to come back here, but keep going. Oh yeah. yeah. So that's fine. Um, and so you get this. You're running around like a crazy person because the event is happening around you in real time. Um, and in addition, you're you're constantly framing shots. You're constantly framing shots in your head. Or alternately, you know, just through experience, you develop kind of an a, a instinct for, you know, okay, at my two o'clock, that shot is going to compose itself in about five seconds. I need to stand here, wait for it take that shot and then go over to this place over here on my nine where a shot's going to compose itself in about a second or so. And then there's a couple of things I want to get here, over here, over here. So there's, it's this constant running like, running around plus composing shots, framing shots, figuring out what you get as, as, as well as you're doing the, have I covered everything I want to cover? Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's just, you know, I was exhausted at the end of every day of shooting and it was, it was amazing you know, the, the, that that night, you know, I wanted to stare at a blank wall for a little while because that was all the stimulation I could handle <laughs> um, after, after the wedding. But, you know, the next day it's like, oh, my God, that was a hell of a workout. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. So, 
I don't even know how we got here. Um, I don't know either, <laughs> but it's great. But hey, cool. Um, but yeah, so there is a lot of how I. So yes, but the thing is, I know how we got here. Editing. So what we ended up talking about was. I don't do any editing on site. There's no time. You're too busy taking shots. You're, I forget the director, the film director said, it's, it's like gathering clay. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not trying to carve while you're gathering clay. When you're, when you're shooting footage, you're trying to get as much as you possibly can so that you, and you do the best you can while you are there, but then post-production is where you do a lot of the magic. Yeah. Not to fix things that went wrong. You have to have a base level of skill. But then a lot of the magic happens in post-production when, you know, you do get the chance to say, okay, I have taken all the shots. No more shots are going to be taken. The wedding was over a week ago. Now it's time to go back and edit this thing. And by keeping those tasks separate, the collecting, the documenting, if you will, from the editing, um, it means that I do both better because multitasking is to some extent a myth. Um, we only have one brain. It can, it can, you know, it can keep track of a couple of things, but it's just moving back and forth very, very quickly. Yeah. And that is not for free. Yep. There's those, the, what is it called? The context switching costs? Or exactly. Context switching penalties? Exactly. You have to load in the context, you do your thing, you have to dump that context, load in the next context, and you can do those very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you actually start looking at efficiency, um, I mean, there, there's... I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the, the, the internet thing if there was a study on this, um, but <laughs> I saw a study. I'm, that, that's, I'm very happy for you. Um, but the idea of you can measure context switching costs. You can measure context switching costs. Like, okay, well, this line is, you know, just write A through Z or Z through A, and this line is, you know, 100 through zero and alternate, but, you know, write one out, then write the other one out, and then alternate writing them out. And yeah. See, see, see how long it takes. Um, and obviously, and, and you can even, if you're really, really careful, you can edit out the cost of moving the pen between the two if you really wanted to do that. But it's a matter of, okay, I wrote a Z, now I write 100. Okay, now I'm going to write a Y. Right, that's the next letter after Z, right? Yeah, okay, now I'm going to write a 99. Now, C, Y, X. Uh, and, and as opposed to, I'm pretty sure I could rattle off the alphabet backwards right now, but the point is that by switching between those two and tasks that are slightly unfamiliar, um, you can actually see how much you dump context yeah. versus regain context. And it hurts. It really does. You actually get to see like efficiency drop by, you know, half when yeah. you're doing anything. One of the biggest problems I see is when you're trying to multitask, you never really fall into that flow state oh, yeah. on one task. So it's like, yeah, you might be feeling like you're getting a couple things done but I don't know for me like especially with writing or editing I have to like get into the zone and that takes a little while to do and if I'm trying to break out and do something else at the same time it's just not going to happen well that goes back to that concept of a thought construct right because what is flow state I mean you know we can go back to Mikhail there's a few extra letters in there I'm sorry Mikhail um, about, about flow state but the idea that you're building this very, very complex construct in your head and you're, you know, for lack of a better term, you are reconfiguring yourself 
to be to be the world specialist in that construct in your head while you're doing this thing. Mm. And as soon as you have to take that apart or shunt it to the side so your neurons can check that piece of email that just came in or that, you know, fill in your favorite social media here, that very fragile thing gets a little bit dinged and dented. And now you have, maybe you're very careful and maybe you move it back, but now you're like, oh, right, where was I? Yeah. And maybe that's 30 seconds, you know, maybe it doesn't feel like that much, but 30 seconds here and 30 seconds there. And maybe you aren't getting deep enough or maybe you do get really unlucky and it does wreck your flow. And so now there's 15 to 20 minutes before you get that thought construct assembled again so you can really look at what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's really, really, and it's really, really hard because it's like you were w- woken up out of a nap. Yeah. Know, it, it, it's, it's a, whoa, hey, um, uh, yeah, sure. I, sure, <laughs> I'd, I, I'd love some tea. That, 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 I, uh, I can't English right now. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of, that kind of thing where I know that like when, when I was, you know, speaking about Harry Potter, when I was reading the Harry Potter book and reading the span, you know, and go, going through it, and so I'm on, I'm on page 82 of 240 right now. Um, my wife would ask me a question, and and it was clearly in English, and my brain processed like, someone said words at you. I don't know what <laughs> language they were in, and I'm like, I. No, Ablo. <laughs> I'm so sorry. What did you say? This doesn't and, even have to be a language switch. I read books every night, and whenever if I'm reading something and my girlfriend will ask me a question, I don't parse the words. I just know the sound came at me from a different direction, and she's going to have to say it again in a more annoyed tone this time. <laughs> oh, 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 yes. She should I, probably just learn to hit me with a stick first. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. It's just, wham! Okay. Some <laughs> okay, <tea>. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, I'm prepared. Go. That is um, often the question. Want some tea? Yeah, exactly. Um, there, there's a in in the pantry at home. There's this caddy that's filled with packets of tea. It's labeled Matt's Tea Problem. Um, there there is large amounts of tea. Um, tea. Do you have the same problem I have, where you buy like 15 different varieties and decide you like two of them? Oh, so so I got out of that one. It's more of a when I buy, I buy in bulk. Um, mm. So it's the, well, Assam CTC. I love that tea. It's a brisk, bracing morning tea. And I'll buy a kilo of it at a time. <laughs> so as it turns out, a kilo is a rather large amount of tea. Yes, um, it is. I think I buy like eight ounces. Oh, yeah. If I'm buying um, loose leaf. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I'm buying loose leaf all the time. And it, it, it's very much a, I, I will say, I now know the rookie work from home mistake of um, the, the rookie work from home mistake of, okay, I'm working from home today. Sounds great. I'm going to get the music going. I'm getting everything going. I'm in the zone. I'm going to brew up a pot of tea. And then you brew up this highly caffeinated bracing tea. Um, and you drink it all, 1.2 liters of it, before around 9.30. And then the world starts moving a little bit slower. It's kind of like Futurama when Fry drank the 100 cups of coffee. It's very much the, I... Um, uh, and, you know, it's like you kind of get into that Zen state of this is going to suck in about an hour. <laughs> I can feel it. Um, and to the point where actually uh, making a drink called the rookie mistake where it's uh, a tea infused vodka with a little bit of cream and a little uh, like an Assam tea infused vodka, a little bit of cream and a little bit of simple syrup. 
um, that, you know, it tastes like tea. It is tea. Um, and it is very, very tasty and bad things will happen. Kind of like when you drink 1.2 liters of tea before 9.30 a.m. <laughs> I think I just, I usually have two mugs in the morning and mine's not, I don't know. I have Irish breakfast. I don't even know how caffeinated it is. I feel like my body has not yet gotten to the point where it suffers from over or under caffeination. I just drink my tea. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a nice feeling. I mean, when I need to go for the hard drugs, I go for the coffee. Yeah. Um, you know, like my, my AeroPress technique is unstoppable. Do you so, do like the flip upside down weird, like, and then you reverse gravity and then I don't even know. I don't know these, these people do some crazy stuff. So <clears throat> my reverse AeroPress technique, on the other hand, is quite stoppable as it turns out. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've tried, you know, cause I get really, I've had an AeroPress for like, you know, 10 years I'm like yeah okay hey there's all these things like there's aeropress championships I'm gonna get my <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my aeropress inverted technique that's great okay I see you put the grounds in you do the thing we're gonna have my kettle that I can tune the temperature a little bit that's cool put it in I'm gonna invest it and well let me just say there is no such thing as a minor aeropress containment failure <laughs> It's all or nothing. <laughs> there is there is no such thing. Either it works like what a little beautiful piece of technology. Thank you, inventor of a ruby. But or you end up with, well, um, uh, <laughs> um, right, new shirt. Um, <laughs> where did I put the rags? No, no, all of them. Um, I'm gonna. Sorry, darling. Gonna have to make some more coffee. <laughs> what happened? It's okay. Nobody's hurt. Two, it's it's fine. Grounds and two cups of water everywhere. <laughs> Think things occurred. Yep. <laughs> I have fortunately not yet attempted the reverse AeroPress, so I haven't had a disaster yet. But it's it's very easy to see how it could become one. Oh yes. It's <laughs> like okay, I'm going under pressure. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh oh god. Coffee everywhere. Yep. Um. So, so we, we yep. put a marker in the conversation earlier that I wanted to talk about because you mentioned jobs that are a mix of mental and physical uh, work. Sure. In high school, I had this very real fear that blue collar jobs are manual labor where you stay fit and you get to move and white collar jobs, you sit in the cubicle and you never move and there's no middle ground. And then I was like, <laughs> wait, can is there, are there jobs out there where I can like use a college degree and make a lot of money, but still move? And that is what led me to do an internship in computer networking, which I thought would be dragging wires through the corporate campus and wiring up servers and pulling up floor panels and all that. And instead it was make changes in the firewall and sit in a chair all day. <laughs> so I, I, I will say it really depends on the institution. Like, mm. So I worked for, before I worked at Akamai Technologies, before I worked at Akamai Technologies this time, I worked for um, Tufts University. Okay. And I did, <clears throat> you know, senior network engineer. I did networking for them. <clears throat> and that was a combination of I'm going to sit here and I'm going to configure things. I am the configurator. I will configure. I am the one who configures. <laughs> and And that was fine. But there was also the, you know, Part of the job was, can you lift 50 pounds? Mm. Now it turns out I can. That's fine. Strong Hungarian stock, you know, strong like ox, smart like tractor, sharp like building, and fast like brick. <laughs> but 
you know, I lift these things and it's just the, no, I'm hauling these 150 pounds of gear. Why? Cause it's got to get into, it's not going to rack itself. Yeah. And so there's, you know, you're, you're racking and lifting and moving and what have you, because you're putting stuff in the lab racks and these are, you know, 20 pound, 30 pound boxes and you're lifting it above your head and sticking into the rack. And, you know, you've got your electric screwdriver and you're doing your thing. And <clears throat> there wasn't as much, there, there really wasn't crawling under tables as much, which was mm-hmm. just fine by me. Um, that's all, that's but, all I'm about. But, but the, that, that, that's a thing for you. I, that's what I need. Crawling under <laughs> tables, job description. That's, that's it. <laughs> Chief Taylor, principal, principal, title inflation, principal table crawler. Very <laughs> um, Chief table crawler comes after that. It'll be fine. Maybe that reminds like, me, my friend asked me to rewrite his resume that had Burger King on there. So I put him down as burger technician. And by the end of the session, we had like the most legit sounding Burger King job description ever. <laughs> Manipulate electronic register and count currency. <laughs> Tabulate currency differences. <laughs> Have you ever seen uh, the uh, game by Cheap Ass Games called Give Me the Brain? I haven't. Oh, Should I? Man. Yeah. Just look for, just, just search for, uh, uh, give me the brain. It's this awesome game. It was a card game. It's been around for years and years and years, um, since like early nineties. About a bunch of zombies running a fast food restaurant, <laughs> and but there's only one brain, so they have to actually like bargain with each other for the brain, so they can do things like give me the brain. I need to count the meat. <laughs> this sounds great. Give me the brain. I need my tongue is stuck to the floor. <laughs> and like so so yeah, it, it's just it's it's just a really, really fun game. Okay. But um yeah, and, and so there's you know, and there and there's funds and that's the thing I kind of like about the you know although at this job, I will tell you right now, I have not touched a single piece of networking equipment, physically mm-hmm. touched it, nor do I expect to really. Because you're doing all you know, the planning and the customer facing stuff and working with clients and stuff, right? Yeah, you know, planning, customer facing stuff. I mean, I'm doing some configuration, right? Okay. But that's configuration. I'm sitting in my cube. I got a terminal. I do the configuration. It's fine. Right. But I'm not plugging in things. I'm not doing stuff. That's a completely separate team. When you are, you know, as large as Akamai Technology and you have stuff all, all over the globe, then you don't get to do that anymore. And that's fine because I've spent 14 hours in a data center and I, consecutively without water and I never ever want to do that again <laughs> it's <clears throat> so much you, louder than you'd think before well, a, it's, the first it's louder it's louder and I'm pretty sure that you know a that couldn't have been good for my hearing but um it's so much louder and b it's kept at like 17 percent humidity I mean it's probably not 17 percent yet it's very very dry and so you walk out of there and you've got this pounding headache and you're feeling kind of vaguely desiccated um, and you're wondering what the hell is going on here, and you realize you're thoroughly dehydrated. You you have been drinking, you know, <laughs> you're breathing out water all the time, and you're not putting any in, and the air is so dry that water is just being extracted from you. It's almost as if you just spent a bunch of time in an environment specifically tailored for silicon machines. Who knew? <laughs> um, but I will say, you know, stuff like being able to you know working one one of the things we did and I still remember, I, I will remember this for 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 the rest of my days was over one spring break you know what a forklift upgrade is right where you basically you're physically taking hardware out 
and you're physically putting other hardware in. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. A for- so we had to do a forklift upgrade of typically done with a forklift if you can get one into a space, which is totally not true here because these are university buildings and they took whatever space they could. Yep. So, but just replacing the entire routing infrastructure of the university over spring break, you know, it's like, okay, let's get things in and okay, we're going to plug them in. So you have, you know, our, our telecom people wrestling things into racks and we're dealing with the fiber and you're dealing with the thing and it's just, and you're all sitting in this really, really cramped space couple of people with laptops in case you have to do emergency configurations and get so and it's this very very physical this very very you know the light must flow the light flows through these cables into that box which is very heavy and just got put in the rack by somebody much stronger than you and you know it's it's kind of where the rubber meets the road and it's you know though i don't do that anymore i have a lot of respect for just okay this is these are boxes everywhere. This is this is the way it works. In the end, you know, the way that my voice is getting to you is by, you know, a wireless signal traveling through a wire to a box that travels through wire to another box and so on and so on through 10 iterations and then finally popping out somewhere near you into a Wi-Fi signal, what have you. And the amount of middle boxes, that being the technical term for the amount of middle boxes is all these things in data centers, you know, halfway across the country. And so getting all that put together is a gigantic thing. Yeah. It, it, really, it sounds so simple when you explain it that way. It does make <laughs> sense, but I have to say it still does blow my mind. Like oh, yeah. You're in Boston, which seems close because of air travel, but actually no, it's and ridiculously you are, far. You I'm are, in Iowa. You're in Iowa. Okay. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's very much a, okay, that's theoret- That's that's what, you know, 14 hours by car or something. I, I forget exactly what it is, right? Something but, like that. Something like that. And, you know, it's it's this, okay, you're talking about a thousand miles. And a thousand miles represents, you know, 35, 36 seconds round trip time um, by light, um, you know, in, in, in terms of, it's probably a little less than that. But the idea of, you know, speed of light inside a fiber optic cable is two thirds speed of light in a vacuum. Hmm. And that's your speed limit. Unless you're doing fancy things with radio towers linked between two locations, typically on the internet, you don't get faster than that. Okay. And so that's your speed limit. What do you have to deal with? <clears throat> and how do you make the – I mean I've had things where <clears throat> you start dealing with problems and realizing how the rubber hits the road and going, why the hell is it taking – okay, I want to go from Atlanta to Charlotte and it's taking 70 milliseconds. There is no reason that can possibly be true by the laws of physics. But then you start talking with people and you start learning about things and you talk to the fiber provider and you realize, oh, yeah, we had them on a loop that traveled from Atlanta to Dallas to Chicago to New York and then traveled down, then went into Charlotte. Like, okay, fine. That's 70 milliseconds. (laughs) That's fine. Like, why did you send that traffic from San Jose to Miami and back? Sorry about that. Well, it's like air traffic routing. It's like, why am I going this way to go that way? I suppose it it makes sense in terms of the aggregate, you know, most efficient way to move packets en masse. But the individual packet, it doesn't make sense for. Oh, totally. I mean, and that's why, you know, for example, what I work with is, you know, we have lots of machines all over the place to get as close to the user as possible. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, the speed limit is, you know, physically, how far are you away? 
the closer you are, the faster you can deliver things, and nothing defeats the laws of physics in that regard. Yeah. Um, so it's been it, it's been a really interesting experience, you know, dealing with you know from the university where while we had people who did a lot of the hardcore wiring, which I never really touched, or terminating fiber, to this where it's totally abstract, and you just have to hold that construct in your head of here is how this little bit of the network is shaped and keeping that concept in your head. I mean, one of the things I remember, and this was kind of melding physical and mental memory, um, way, way back in the day, we had a, you know, someone was out in Philadelphia and they were wiring up a rack and we were short cables, but we had to get this thing up and running. And so I was, I had my eyes closed and I was going, okay, take the cable in port two and plug it into port one, one on the router and now you're going to lose control of that, but you should get control here. Tell me when you're ready. Good. I have control. I can do blah, 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 blah. Okay, now unplug that. And, like, I, I had my eyes closed tight, you know, <laughs> physically, like, plugging in the rat. Like, they were on Waldos, and I was telling them what to plug in here and there. And it was just this – because the physical memory is what makes it work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've ever played with um, software package uh, Reason, I believe the name of it is. Um, it's an heard of it. Audio mixing thing. And That's so right. yeah. The, the metaphor is this rack of equipment yeah. that can add stuff to. But then you flip the wrap around and it's all patch cables where you're plugging in things between the two because mm-hmm. that's still the best metaphor they could come up with. Yeah. How you connect things together. To have what that do they kind call of, that? Is it skeuomorphism? Skeuomorphism, yeah. Where it's just uh, like a, a real life interface mapped into a digital interface and made to look like it does in real life. Exactly. Apple used uh, to be huge on that. Oh, Apple used to be huge on that, and then they fired the person who did it. <laughs> um, they, 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 they got. As far as I know, you know, it's basically they got they, they got rid of they got rid of the person who was the, they got rid of the person who was the biggest fan of it. Mm. So, um, so that happened. And, but yeah, skeuomorphism. A lot of times, skeuomorphism is just confusing. Yeah. Um, on on the flip side, it's the at some point you have to get and you have to get people used to things but at some point you need a new metaphor like for example right. for example on like an iPhone sorry iPhone on iPhone um, you have you know how do you explain upload to somebody what does upload look like well they put a box with an arrow facing up mm. which was kind of brilliant it is you're taking something and taking it out of the box and putting it somewhere else yeah because you know the save icon for so many things is still a floppy Yes, it is. Three three and a half inch floppy. How many people have touched a three and a half inch floppy in the past uh, five, ten years? But here's the question. What would you change it to? Because like the vast majority of the population has never seen what an SSD looks like. Mm -hmm. So it's like, is there a thing that it would be worthwhile to change it to yet? Well, the problem is that the problem is if you were to change it to other things. You just get this little bunch of rectangles that look all alike because it's all like a little bunch of – my phone is a little rectangle. An That's SSD true. is a little rectangle. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, it, it, you, you start going, it's like, what, what is it? It's, it's, it's another rectangle. I <laughs> don't know what to do here. Um, and so that's the problem. What do you use? Um, and so you can do stuff like um, 
a box and an arrow pointing down, which is what Apple used. Okay, I'm going to put something into the box, which actually totally works in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. That's one way of doing save. Mm-hmm. But but that's download well, sometimes. But that's download sometimes, exactly. Yeah. So you end up using it. Now, what do you do? Well, you use the floppy because that's all we got right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wish we had a better one, but to some extent we don't. Um, but And then, of course, as you do more stuff in the cloud, then... What, is it, what does it mean? What does it mean when, when you're in the cloud? What does it mean to save? Because you're perpetually saving. So there's it's true. No, there's Maybe no the sa- problem will solve itself for us because you'll never have to hit save again. <laughs> unless you're in certain professions. Save early, save often. Yeah. Um, you know, I can still remember back when I was in college and people would save by closing the window and looking for the prompt to save. As that's opposed to actually saving. That's falling hard right there. That is... That is <laughs> Actually, that's what we call a path to certain misery and destruction, <laughs> um, to use the technical term. When you're tired and you hit no. <laughs> well, oh, man. I, that's uh, scary. God, all my dreams turned asunder. <laughs> it's just bad. I've had enough depressing moments with my video editing program just crashing <laughs> on me. I don't need to tempt fate more. Oh, yeah. No, it's <laughs> horrible. Especially when you start looking at uh, <clears throat> when when you start like doing photo editing, it's like, I just lost seven hours oh, man. of edits. How did that even happen? Yeah. Um, now, as it turns out, you know, you get a lot more incremental saving now that happens behind the back because there's just so much that needs to get saved. Yeah. But it's very much like when I was writing my uh, when I was writing my master's thesis for business school, and so it was very much a, you know, it was just that, and so I was just typing in a window, and it was, you know, I was typing in Word and doing my thing and getting it all going. Because it turns out outline mode in Word is actually really useful for just getting thoughts onto paper and not having to worry about editing. Okay. Um, you're basically setting your style and then going into outline mode and typing in everything based as an outline. And then when you go back into yeah. page layout mode, it's like it's with all your styles and the appropriate thing. The sections are built out and it's pretty cool. Huh. But, you know, every paragraph, save. Save again. <laughs> I'm about yep. to walk away from the machine for like, does my brain flip to you know, doing mail save first? Um, save and then also had it backed by by a uh, Dropbox in this particular case. Yeah, that, that's what I'm going to say. If anyone's listening to this who does not have redundancy set up, I, I remember I was sitting in the library a few years ago at my school, and there was this girl, and her Mac like died. And I had worked at the IT center, so I was trying to help her out, and I was like, "Do you have Dropbox or anything?" She's like, "Nope, no USB <laughs> thumb drive backups. Nope." Okay. Well, you're calling up data recovery experts and you're going to pay through the nose because otherwise your entire college career has just went down with that platter. <laughs> I'm sorry you trusted your life to spinning rust. Oh, yeah, it's it's scary. It's it's really really scary and you know, I remember the way, you know, it's the I'd be saving, you know, my machine had you know, hard drives were no no longer novel um by the point I ha- I was in college, which was fine by me. But it was a idea of, no, you're saving that off to a floppy, and you're saving that off to another floppy. I mean, when I was doing wedding photography, there was the rule of three, two, one. Three, back, um, three copies, two on site, one remote. Okay. Um, pretty much, um, since I, it was always two of us who shot together. Yeah. <clears throat> um, we always, by the time we left the site, we had a copy of all photos on both laptops um, plus an external drive. Okay. Um, 
plus the CF cards that were actually in the cameras. Yeah. Because never erased. So there were there were anywhere between four and five copies of these photos before we left because he can't go back. Yeah, you got to do it on site. Yeah, and like, and we made sure that we traveled in two completely different directions and stored the photos. And then later tonight, we'd get better, we'd get back if we wanted to get a beer or something. But yeah. it was the, all photos must be stored. All I mean, it was too much data to move to the internet. I mean, when you're talking, you know, 25, 26 gigs. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a lot. Yeah, I, that, that's a lot to, that's a lot to move via the internet. But that doesn't stop me from having multiple copies with two completely sets of people, sets of people in two completely separate cars going in two completely different directions. <laughs> make sure, which is, you know, okay, that's a little bit paranoid. We're not talking about state secrets here, right? But you're talking about it's a client. You're, it's a, it's a and client. It's that one moment in their life, uh, I can't yeah, imagine the moment. pressure. Oh yeah, it's it's well, you kind of get used to it. It's the if if you actually thought about the pressure, you. He's like, oh, my God, every photo is going to be an indelible memory for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, you know, you'd never be able to shoot anything like, no, mm. this is just an event. Yeah. This is just another event that you take care of like any other event. So you have to be a little bit detached in in so much as you don't freak out, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. It's the, you know, you're worthy, you're worthy. Now stand up. You know, it's that very... Okay, I'm t- I'm shooting this event. This is a one shot event. I've got to get it right. But we've got two shooters. We've got, you know, we may even also have an assistant who's you know looking out for us and calling shots. Um, but between those, you know, you're able to get the job done. You get the job done each time. Yeah. And I gotta say, of all the weddings I shot, I have. I cannot recall having any wedding where it's like, no, I was, I, I, there is no wedding where I was able to say, you know, I just didn't deliver the goods. Mm-hmm. Every, every wedding, you know, it's like you deliver the shots and you should, you looked brilliant on that day. You were so happy. You did all these things. This was a beautiful, beautiful day. And we were glad to be able to photo it, to, to photograph it. Yeah. And that was, you know, as long as you can walk away saying that and saying, I did a good job. You know, and saying, and we busted our butt, and so did you, and you're going to love these photos. And that was a ton of it. And so it, it was very, very satisfying, but it took a lot of time. Yeah, I bet. And <clears throat> it took a lot of time. And once I was working a job that was taking a lot more of my time, just kind of had to wrap it up and say, okay, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I got those skills. And now it's time to put that on the shelf for a little while. Yeah, I still do. I still do a ton of photography, um, and you know, I had I've had a gallery showing, which is a lot of fun. But you know, and do a lot of uh, I have a lot of friends who do uh, fire spinning, and so I actually get to do fire photography, which was which is That's a tremendous cool. amount of, tremendous I, amount of fun. Is that hard to do? Because I would um, imagine you have to get like the dynamic range of a photo like that, and you can't do HDR because they're spinning fire. So, yep. man. So, so a lot of it is my skills from doing wedding photography actually stood me in pretty good stead, right? Because you have to catch the moment. You don't get to control anything. Yeah. And so, um, and over time you see enough people doing fire spinning, you, okay, this is, this is the kind of stuff they're spinning with. There's going to be the light curve based on the fuel they're using and the instrument they're using. Okay. I have this idea of how long a routine is. 
okay, they're, they're really, they're, they're a flow spinner. So I'm not going to be able to like catch them to repeat anything. So this, I'm going to take it. And a lot of it was catching him, having the fire illuminate the person who was spinning. Okay. Was a lot of the way that was. So no flash, um, no, no, no flash. It would typically it's fire eliminates the person, illuminates the person work from there, shoot raw. So I have more blacks to work with. Yeah. Um, just shades, shades of black and shades of gray to work with and work from there. And then, <clears throat> um, and so that you have light levels because when you have that many black levels, you can really just, you can, you can start teasing stuff out of the photo and post, like, show me what you've really got and see what's in there. Yeah. Um, but then taking like people who are real tech spinners and going, okay, well, you're doing this pattern and you repeat it every two seconds. I know you repeat it every two seconds. I'm going to set an exposure to two seconds and get exactly one iteration of this pattern. Mm. And so I have a whole series of shots where it's exactly one iteration of a pattern that somebody was doing and they were standing rock solid still. And it's just this brilliant thing with them standing in the middle of this beautiful pattern superimposed over them. Um, and just being able to do that timing and then say, okay, I'm going to be adjusting exposure and F-stop pretty much on every shot. Yeah. And just being able to do that and, okay, that shot is going to compose itself into three seconds. Sound familiar? Yep. Things like that. Applying so, yeah. skills from the old gig. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's all that construct of skills has to link together somehow. It can't be just the, oh, and here's where I use the sunny 16 rule in order to figure out this about a photo. It's the being able to employ the skills in real time because everything is linked together in your head. It's kind of like a language. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like learning a language where isolated grammar rules aren't going to help you. You have to link it all together. It's like learning, you know, building the construct so that you can handle a really thorny technical problem mm -hmm. and forcing yourself to actually build that interlinking of the things in your head instead of saying, well, I noticed these 35 different things. Well, that's not going to help you anything. It's like, well, how do they interact with each other? Um, I will say one of the most formative moments I had in a here, don't ever do that ever again kind of way was um, a long time ago, I was working, I was, I had to clear a whole bunch of different types of network hardware of all shapes and sizes for different software loads. It's just a thing I had to do. Mm. And I was running out of time and it was during the summer and it was in this concrete building that really didn't get all that much HVAC during the summer. And so it was 85 in the building and kind of muggy and I'm, I'm without money lights and I'm there with, it's just me and this equipment. Did I have the equipment's throwing off heat? Cause it totally was. And so I'm sitting there kind of feeling vaguely sweaty and miserable, plugging in cables with my laptop and doing the thing, waiting for the thing to boot. So it comes up and document the process and blah, blah, blah. And at that time in my career, which was pretty early on, I didn't have the organizational skills yet. Mm. So this is something there, if I had my act together and actually, okay, I'm going to set up a grid, check that off, 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 instead of scribbling notes on a piece of paper, it probably would have taken about two and a half somewhat annoying hours, and that would have been okay. Yeah. But it took me seven hours, eight hours, because it was all scrawled notes before I figured out how to organize things to get it done. And it was all these isolated, wait, did I check that one? Crap, I don't remember. Oh. Well, I have to do that thing. Well, where's my notes on that? Well, it didn't say that either. Crap. And so seven, eight hours later of being in this miserable, miserable place and going and with all these isolated facts, but no actual coherence to them. And that was 
what started me down the path of, hey, I've got to get really organized because this sucked, to another place of saying, okay, I have to understand how to link all these things together. I have to understand how to organize my thoughts yeah. in a meaningful way because you know, when you are debugging something and you spend five hours looking for a comma, <laughs> because well that works been that worked, that worked that worked been there you know it's like been there done that burnt the t-shirt got the scar tissue and you're like why the hell didn't i see this like because you had all these independent things and you didn't look at the whole mm. of it and you know winding us all the way back to like the 50 minute rule or something like that that's all about making sure that you have that you've built the construct if you're debugging something and you're any good at all, you already have a pretty complex construct in your head. Now it's time to translate that. And if you're stuck, now it's time to translate that into a form where other people can see it and load it in, and then begin to load it into their heads. And in fact, you're probably going to do a lot of legwork for making it in a much simpler construct for them just by writing it down. Cool. Actually, I want to highlight the the organizational system bit mm-hmm. because uh, you mentioned this earlier, how like people will be like, Oh, I read a study on the internet somewhere. I did. <laughs> it was, I don't know where it was, uh, but I was reading a study about how people form their passwords and how they think they'll remember them. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people will think, Oh, if I create this very complicated uh, path of references and reminders then I will easily remember my password so okay I have this wind up girl book here and there's an elephant on the cover and I remember I saw an elephant at the zoo when I was seven and I was uh, wearing a Mega Man t-shirt so the password is Mega Man like you think because it's so vivid and ridiculous you'll remember it but people are actually less likely to remember those things and I've had similar experiences to what you had where you'll just throw out a bunch of random reminders and pointers to things you're thinking about at one time and then you come back to it later and you're like, I don't remember anything about what this is referring to. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, totally. And, and 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 it's very much a, I, well, unfortunately, I'm not sitting here on a June evening with, you know, this T-shirt on with this music going on the background. And, you know, I will admit there were a couple of times where it was a password that was really hard to recover. It's like, okay, what were the conditions under which I thought of that password? <laughs> and I am... Proud slash sad to say that in one of the two cases, I was able to recover it okay. by spending an hour to basically backforming. Okay, that was in June. That means I was sitting here. I tend to drink iced tea. I had it over here. What was I reading during then? Go back through my book log. Okay, I was reading that book. That means that book was over here. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, right. I was thinking of this and then this and that I had the book of the wind-up girl sitting over there and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I've not read The White Up Girl yet, but I've been meaning to. I just bought it, oh. actually. Uh, like 11 pages into it. Nice. It's interesting. I, I, didn't, I, hadn't, I knew nothing about it. I just picked it up. Yeah. It's interesting to posit a world in which gasoline and oil has run out. And oh, like, yeah. He kind of digs into what are people doing to get energy and to keep things running. It's pretty, oh, yeah. it's pretty interesting to think about that. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, the oil is a fascinating, cheap source of energy. And so it's the, okay, because oil is both a, um, it's cheap to extract from the ground for now. Yep. Um, and it's also one of the 
densest, most stable, easily transportable mediums for energy that we have. So it's this, it's kind of this all purpose thing and wow, we, we can't really make more of it. Yeah. Um, it's kind I mean, of renewable, but it takes rather a long time. <laughs> and even that's kind of iffy because the things that, um, that's theoretically possible, mm. but I seem to recall that it's also, it was a combination of dinosaurs decomposing plus other things that could easily digest hydrocarbons like that not existing. Oh, okay. So you're at a completely different part of the biosphere now where now you have things that can digest those. You're not going to make oil even that fast. Yeah. So renewable, that's, you know, renewable even in that loosest sense of the world, we'll wait a thousand years and we're cool. Even that's not even kind of true. Yeah. I mean, now that is that is going from the, the catacombs of my memory. Um, and <laughs> so I, I, I don't want to actually stake my reputation or a claim on that. But one would presume that since the biosphere has changed so much, that the conditions under which we can create a volume of oil might change as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just I'm just kind of relegating myself to the fact that this is one of those episodes where I will be digging through a lot of resources to make the show notes. So <laughs> don't worry about staking your reputation. I'll just be like, yeah, I found this. And you can read about that if you want to. <laughs> Interesting that you mentioned the whole like going back to the instance in which you created that password. I did, I was doing some research about how to recall facts during a test that you can't remember. And there's something called context dependent learning where we are easily able to retrieve information if we are in the context where we learned it. So if you learn something sitting where you are right now, uh, you'll more easily retrieve it if you come back to that spot. But there's been some research to show that if people can sit there and visualize that location, even if they're not there, then that can sort of like link them back to that information they couldn't remember. So the exercise you went through would actually help. Right. And and and, and it's very much the now it happens to be the same physical space as well, which helped mm-hmm. in that time. Like, okay, I'm gonna go back to my office, I'm gonna figure this one out. But looking at I mean, it's kind of like people who you know, they went to, you know, church or synagogue or whatever as a kid. And, you know, if you ask them, okay, say this prayer. And you're saying, they're like, I, the first words are, okay, um, I don't know. And then, you know, they're, they're in church for a wedding or something else. And like, immediately comes out. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, yeah. The synagogue is like, I didn't know I knew that much Hebrew. That was fascinating. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and it all just kind of spills out because it's all it's all lined up and it was said so many times, but you still needed that context to unlock it. Yeah. And I mean, and that's <clears throat> giving people and and the trick is to give people enough contexts into what they are learning that it isn't the, okay, I need to go back up to my office, I need to put the tea there, I need to put the wind-up girl there. Rather, it's saying, okay, let me show you the 15 different ways you can access this information, Mm. as opposed to just the one way that you can access this information. Because it's it's not about the, well, hey, okay, you're sitting at your desk, the way that you frob the Framistan is by doing this, 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 and this, but instead saying, well, you know, this is the general theory behind a frob, and this is the general theory behind framascanning frobs. So you mentioned let, that when I emailed you, yeah, and I didn't get it. 
<laughs> is that like a abstract term like grokking or is that actually a, a reference to something or it it is a it's it it i so frob is if uh, you want to talk about sourcing things right <laughs> you know so frob goes back to the tech model railroad club at mit or so i've heard okay where it's just a frob is just a small arm or a thing that you could move around like a switch or a lever so it's mm. just an arbitrary thing to be manipulated and I don't even think I'm getting that right. And the frob is, of course, because this English, it's a noun and a verb, so you can frob the frob. Um, and Framistan, I think I dug that out of Mad Magazine and Don Martin and a sound effect I heard one time or something where it were a rule of a game that they made up in Mad Magazine. But it's just the idea of, okay, you need to noun the verb. You totally, and I'm, okay. I'm, a, I'm a verb, I'm a noun verbing fiend. And so... I'm going. I'm going. I'm going to verb the hell out of that noun, which is fine. But the but I that sounds. I like Frob and Framistan because it sticks in people's heads. Okay, it's stuck in your head. It did. So so there you go. QED. So in this particular case, it's it's why you know I I got a bachelor bachelor of science in computer science. I'm very happy I got that because it taught me a ton of theory that then gave me multiple contexts in which to understand various things. It's not just about, well, I know big O notation and you don't, um, but rather being able to say, okay, here are 15 different ways I can approach this because I understand the basic theory behind it. Mm. So, but you have to be able to link it to things in the real world. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Hence the reason, finding multiple ways to learn a language. Um, Finding multiple ways to describe... Um, a technical subject. One drill that I went through when I was mentoring people in professional services was, okay, describe that to me in five minutes. Describe it to me in two minutes, 30 seconds, 15 seconds, one sentence. Describe these to me in this many ways. What do you edit out? What do you add? Uh. What do you move around? Um, not to pitch it to me. You know, don't don't pitch something. Don't sell me. But what do you think are the most salient things about this thing that you're going to tell me about? Because that gives you different ways in to that thought construct, which then gives you different ways to rotate it around in your head. Talking about physical versus mental models here, right? Yeah. Um, gives you different ways to rotate around in your head saying, hey, well, if I think about it in terms of um, if I think about it in terms of photography, well, then really I want to kind of do this and this and this in order to prepare myself and understand that I want this depth of field to actually look at this thing here. So maybe depth of field indexes to, you know, looking at maybe limiting the view of the data that I have in order to figure out what's going on. You know, it's it's this combination of, you know, this interdisciplinary, multimodal way of looking at things. Well, that was that was too many syllables. So the idea that, you know, which is why go back to a pen. Go back to a pen and write stuff out. Why? Because that's a completely different part of your brain you have to engage mm. in order to figure stuff out. Um, talk about it. Talk about it with the rubber duck. Why? That's a completely different way of having to relate that information. Even between speaking and writing are two completely different routes, give or take. So you can start talking about, okay, well, how would I write this down? Well, I can draw this little diagram out on a piece of paper and make this all go. And then you can start engage. And another reason I use pen to paper because unless you've got a graphics tablet and let's let's be honest most people don't um 
being able to write out with a pen a diagram and engage some visual memory as another way in to understanding that gigantic bolus of ideas that you're trying to debug and why isn't this thing working is going to give you another insight and another and another set of metaphors with which to understand the thing you're wrestling with so that when the time comes to talk with somebody you can use this gigantic array of metaphors now this can get you in trouble because you know i can go you know going up to someone saying so hey you know it's totally like it's totally like shooting fire spinning and they're going to look at me like i have five heads and seven elbows <laughs> um which is fair because they've never done it it doesn't yeah. mean anything to them um but you can talk about it's just like riding a bike you can talk about within certain crowds it's just like mixing a drink so um, part of the know. art of explaining something is finding a metaphor that works with your audience as well as you so you can connect those ideas in an area where both of you have mental nodes already established, essentially. Exactly. Now, there's some next level stuff you can do. Because let's say you don't have, let's say you want to get another set of concepts into somebody's head that they don't already have. Well, you want to link it up with something they have, but you don't have an exact match. And maybe you don't want them to have an exact match. Um, um, so what what can you do instead? You can say, okay, um, and give them, remember that exercise, okay, teach it to me in three minutes, teach it to me in two minutes, teach it to me in 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. I'm going to toss out a framework to you of this thing that you never knew about before. And now I'm going to fill that up and then hand that to you. So being able to say, for example, um, talking about photography and being able to say, Okay, so here's the thing. You can let more light into the lens, but then that means that less of things are in focus. And that's called a depth of field. You can see farther away or closer. And now in 20 seconds or so, I've explained to you the basic concept of the more light you let in, the less stuff is in focus. Hmm. Um, so the more data you have, um, the harder it is to actually figure out a view. And, and it's very pretty much a, or come up with any other metaphor to, that you might want to use about it. But the idea is you can, if, if you really, really understand a subject, you know, Richard Feynman was a genius because he could explain exceedingly abstruse, abstract concepts in physics to people in simple ways because he knew them well enough to know exactly what to talk about. Right. Um, you have to be you have to know something backwards forwards and sideways to be able to explain it simply yeah. it's very easy to explain something in a complex way because um if you don't know something well enough and you explain it with a lot of complexity that means you haven't organized it well enough in your head to tie it to other things people might know about right um because part of knowing something is to link it up with other disciplines that you may have, whether it's, you know, calligraphy, which is something that I did when I was in high school because for Sweet Sixteens, you know, invitations for Sweet Sixteens and more mitzvahs. Um, or link it up with, okay, well, this is this is how you write something. This is the written word. This is what it means to write this way. Or photography or choral singing, which is something else I do. Um, or community theater. Or, you know, using the metaphors, like, for example... Um, 
This is a fun one. <clears throat> so I don't know if you've ever done any theater at all. Have you? I haven't. Uh, okay. My girlfriend's dad actually has done a lot. All right. So, so I'm just like getting reminded of him right now. <laughs> so if you tell him, so, so there's one thing that he's undoubtedly heard a lot then. And uh, I'm not going to lay money on it, but I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong. Um, in the green room, you know what a green room is, the ready room. Yeah. Yeah. So in the green room, um, the stage manager, let's say there's 10 minutes to house lights going, to, to the house going, house lights going down or the house opening. So the stage manager will go, 10 minutes to house. And everybody will stop what they're doing and say, thank you, 10. Now, thank you, who? Thank you, thank you 10. Okay. Number 10. 10 minutes to house, thank you, 10. Now, what is that? That's a very, very elegant message passing algorithm because only one person in the green room needs to hear it. But if they shout out, thank you, 10, everybody else is going to yell out, thank you, 10 immediately afterwards. Mm. And so now you've propagated this message. Everybody knows that there's 10 minutes to house and the stage manager knows that that message has been heard by everybody. Okay. It's really kind of brilliant. And so um, I've had friends who were who are teachers in elementary school where, and because they come from a theater background, they actually like, how do you keep your kids so well behaved? They're like, well, they know when it's time to, they say, we're going to start at 4.15. Like, oh, we don't want to start at 4.15. Kids mill around with us. And kids say, and she'll say five minutes to seats. And every kid will say, thank you, five. Hmm. And then it's a countdown. But it doesn't feel like a countdown. It's just a, okay, two minutes to seats. Thank you, too. Um, I've done this with people where we had a large gathering of people, professional service, like, okay, 10 minutes to presentation. Thank you, 10. And 250 people in a room that message propagated to over time. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, um, and, but that's a way of, that's just another discipline with which to coordinate people. Yeah. Um, and so, tying all these things together and then you start thinking about it in terms of well hey 10 minutes 10 minutes to house thank you 10 well it's a message passing algorithm where else can i use this kind of message passing algorithm in my code hmm. what does it mean to use that kind of message passing algorithm well that's a message passing algorithm with certain constraints you know it's the everybody doesn't have to coordinate at once but the message has to propagate there has to be an acknowledgement back how does that actually work if you were to do it in a computer how would you simulate that what would that be what would be the propagation dynamics and now I'm talking about something completely different that started with a stage manager in community theater in a green room telling me there's 10 minutes to the house opening huh. QED <laughs> now what does QED mean I've heard it before oh um, Latin um, quod erat demonstratum. Um, I will one second. QED definition. I think a lot of people use it on Hacker News. Yeah, and I have um, looked it up several times. It's like one of those things that my brain affirms and then throws away. So, so the actual Latin um, that I'm going to pronounce exceedingly poorly for that is not a language I know well. Um, quod erat demonstrandum, um, meaning which is what had to be proven but kind of also means so there. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, it, it's the, or alternately, a mathematician's way of saying I win. <laughs> um, thank you, Urban Dictionary. The the idea that, you know, QED, it's like, okay, okay, I've proven I've proven this, and QED, there you go. There you go. So there. And that's all I have I, to say. I, that's all I have to I have proven. 
I have proven this thing to you. Okay. So before we before we head out, I want to ask you like one question. So I wish that I had a podcast that was just like all conversations like these because (laughs) they're fun, right? And like a lot of times it's like, okay, I'm going to interview this person and I have like X, Y, and Z I want to ask them and it's going to be a piece of content like how to write a speech or something like that. And this is not that. But these are like those really fun conversations where just a million things come up and I love them. But I did want to ask you, uh, because you wrote about this 15-minute rule, one common question I get from people I know personally, from people who email me, is like, I just got a job and ostensibly I was qualified for this job because they hired me, but now I feel like I know zero and they're going to fire me at any minute. So since you've you've risen to this level of network planner uh, and you've, you know, done all these jobs. What is like a, uh, a realistic time frame for someone to become competent in their job? So <clears throat> first you have to start with the fact that they hired you, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And assuming they're good at, they're, they're good at hiring, no guarantee, but it's possible. Then assume that they know that you're going to take some time to spit up. That's mm-hmm. just, that's just true. I would say, well, obviously, there's no hard and fast rule. I can say from my experience, you could be taking up to six months, realistically, six to nine months before you're actually producing positive value. Okay. You know, because you, for the for that first period of time, unless it's something where really you are being plugged and played to like write this code, to do this thing, to do this one thing, in which case, you know, okay you're plug and play and you're coming up to speed immediately to do this thing as opposed to working on larger projects or what have you. Um, You're going to have to learn a whole bunch of systems that are in other people's heads. You know, hopefully everything's documented. Hopefully there's training videos. Probably not. But now you need to sit down with people and you need to learn and you need to get up to speed. Mm. And that could be six months. And in a lot of cases, I know here at Akamai, you know, every person in professional services, every person in networks, every person in engineering believes that, you know, you get this moment where you feel, I am the stupidest person at Akamai. I am the stupidest person here. I have no idea why they hired me. I either interviewed really well or I got them on a good day or what have you. And what that is is your brain making those linkages between all these random facts that are part of a system and things begin to gel. Mm. But it's hard for a while. But it's really hard for a while. It's really, really hard because you have nothing to link it to. Mm. It's probably consistent in and of itself. But for a while, while you can avoid you – know, it's like, okay, I know, I know – Matt Ringel told me I shouldn't be learning random facts. I should find a way to link them together. Totally true. But that doesn't mean you'll be able to do that. That just yeah. means something you shouldn't do. You're going to be accumulating random facts for a while. Mm. And as you start, unless you are either very disciplined, very lucky, or more, more likely both, you're going to be collecting random unrelated facts for a while until you see the pattern and link yeah. them all together. And for a complex system, that could take six, nine months Mm. just to understand where to hang new knowledge. 
Yeah. And so that's, that is really hard. And you have to, you know, there's a term, be gentle with yourself, you know, give yourself, give yourself some slack, but realize you got the same brain everybody else did. You know, your brain wires the same way, you know, you got, you're working with neurons just like everybody else does. You're working synapses the way everybody else does. You have to gain enough context to get that interlinked knowledge so that you have many ways of accessing the same data. The same people who you're working with people who've been there for two years, three years, four years, 10 years, who have all these constructs in their heads already, and you're building them from roughly nothing. And, you know, I've talked to people who are like, yeah, I did a lot of research on this company before I came here, and I thought I knew something, and I come here, and you pull back the cover, and I clearly have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm dumb. And you're like, no, no, you're not. Are you're, they going to fire me tomorrow? They're, a, they're totally not going to fire you. Mm-hmm. B, give yourself time. Just give yourself the six months to learn. If your manager is not telling you, you know, you've got to pick up the face, then odds are you don't have, odds are you're doing okay. Yeah. You know, ch- check in with your manager. Make sure that everything's okay. Keep a log. Write stuff down. Do, I mean, I, I love pen and paper, so that's me. But I knew when I was learning things from scratch, I would write everything down in notes. And then the next morning, before I start my day, I would reread my notes from the day before. Okay. Um, that's as a kind good of, idea. You know, just basic repetition, review. Yeah. I mean, you can talk about spaced repetition systems and, and flashcards and Anki web and all the other stuff for, 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 time, for, for time and material. But really just... Write down your notes, review. You are learning. This is a class. Yeah. This is, yeah. you are you are studying here. It's good to think of it that way, I think. Yeah. And, I've and got a thing, note of uh, After Effects commands and like stuff that I, I forget. I'd done them, but I forget <laughs> them. I, I actually put them in Evernote now because I know that I'm going to forget them. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I've done that, I've done that with uh, Lightroom where mm. it's very much a, okay, well, this was the Vulcan nerve pinch on the keyboard in order to get this other thing to happen over there. It's That's cool. the best visual metaphor for a keyboard conversation or a combination I've ever heard. It, 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 it is. <laughs> okay, now we're going to do this thing and then the lights are going to flicker a little bit, but then all this stuff will happen and it'll be great. <laughs> I have made a masterpiece. <laughs> and uh, so, but but that's really what it comes down to. Um, people talk about lifelong learning, never stop learning, what have you. I mean, especially if you're just coming out of college, one of the best things you can do is remember how you learned, remember how you studied. Because uh, think about it this way. In the four years of a liberal arts or engineering degree, depending upon where you went, you were cramming insane amounts of information into your head on a daily basis. Being a student was your full-time job. And, you know, you know, hefty chunks of the collected works of Shakespeare, Kant, Nietzsche, Hobbes, Locke, um, physics, chemistry, bio, computer science, take your discipline, take whatever you t- take whatever you want. And the reality of the situation is you were cramming this ridiculous amount of information to your head and you knew how to study. Okay, maybe you didn't, but you just tried really, really hard. You get out of college, you get out of college and suddenly, okay, I'm in a job. 
now I'm supposed to just do the minimum I am to do my job. Yeah. But, but people do that. And a lot of us do that. And learning if you're not careful, over. well, learning mode over. Because like, holy crap, I actually get to like go home at the end of the day and not think about school. And, you know, don't get me wrong. When I was at Tufts and I was, I got to take classes, like I took Mandarin Chinese hmm. for a semester and I aced the class, but it was a full-time job on top of a full-time, I mean, I, okay, not a full-time, like a half-time job. I was spending about 20 hours a week, including class time, just to learn it. And it was really hard and I loved it and I adored it, but I couldn't spend 60 hours a week <laughs> combined doing this stuff but but it felt really good to learn and I still you know will sketch out Chinese characters every now and then I can still read a little bit of Mandarin mm. but um, but that learning that feeling of going to sleep at night going my brain is full I'm I'm done now we're, we're, we're good I've I cannot learn anymore I need to actually like assimilate all this and then overnight, you, you know, a good night's sleep, your brain kind of rearranges itself. You figure out what's going on. You get those memories long term and you start the new day. You know, imagine, you know, even if you're kicking ass and taking names at work, imagine how much work you're actually doing, you know, and, 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 and you're doing that and realizing odds on, odds on you're not studying. Odds on you're not even studying. Imagine what it could be like if you did actually put some structured learning and studying to it. Yeah. And, you know, be a student of your job. Be a student of your job. Take the time. Look through, you know, crack the book, so to speak. Look at the documentation. Ask people. Sit down with people. Figure it out. On top of, of course, doing your job. But, you know, one of the great things about like when I did new hire training in professional services is I got six weeks where I was explicitly told you are not touching customers. You, you're not certified to touch customers. We don't want you to touch customers code. Yeah. You're going to be here and you are going to learn. You are going to learn. Your job is to learn full stop and take quizzes and do labs and do whiteboard exams and a bunch of other stuff, but you will learn. Mm -hmm. And I think that, Taking that, you know, knowing that you're going to get there and you're going to suck. And because it's a skill and you're being paid for it, you're not just going to put it down like, hey, okay, I learned how to do a three ball cascade and I'm not very good at juggling anymore. I'm going to stop now. Um, the amount of juggling equipment I have at home is rather inordinate. Um, <laughs> I, you know, instead you're going to say, okay, I don't get to put this down. This is my job. I'm not going to leave a job because it started sucking because, you know, you get that kind of ramp up you go from nothing to something and that feels really good yeah and then it kind of flattens out and you realize oh my god i can't you know i did the lazy route of learning a lot of random facts but i have nothing to link them together oh crap i'm not learning anything because i can't learn anything more unless i link stuff together and so you end up in this kind of dip where oh my god i'm the stupidest person on the planet and then slowly you climb your way out as you build those interconnections yeah and you start, and that's going to take you six to nine months, you know, for starters. And realize that you are working with the same brain that everyone else is who's got a decent head on their shoulders. And you just have to learn that this is part of the learning process of learning any skill. It's like learning juggling or photography or, you know, a language or anything else. 
you've got a bunch of isolated things that you learn and then you slowly link them together and then you build a framework so you can hang other things on those and then you tear it all apart because you got it all wrong and then you put one together but you do that quicker next time Hmm. and then you hang things on those and it's a constantly iterating process of coming up with a new understanding so you can absorb even more information and then coming up with a new understanding so you can rearrange all that and absorb more information and now suddenly you're the expert and you don't understand why you thought you sucked you know when you started this job yeah and that's how you get there so that is a fairly long-winded answer to your question <laughs> i realize but that is you know six to nine months and realize that you're going through the same process you're going through when you were learning something and starting from zero because right. you are starting from zero yeah a, if, if you if you tell yourself, hey, look, you know, I suck at this, but I'm starting from nothing. Right. I think that, it's so hard to put yourself in that frame of mind because all like the part time jobs we do as kids mm-hmm. like sit there in the target back room with the training, learn that unions are evil, learn how to operate <laughs> the pizza machine and you should be at operational capacity within uh, two days. Otherwise, you're fired because you are working minimum wage. But yeah, it's like six to nine months in a more knowledge work based job. And I think the good thing to realize is like a company is making an investment to hire you. It's going to cost them money to train you and they're not just going to throw you away at random. So like you said, unless your manager is starting to say something to you, you shouldn't be worried. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing is, I mean, I'm sure you're used to this more than me because I went straight from college to working for myself. But you're all around these superiors who don't give you as much feedback because mm-hmm. their job isn't to give you feedback. Whereas like your professor's job is at least in part to do that for you. Mm-hmm. So you it might not come as often. It might not come as often. You're not going to get the repeated. You're, you're not going to get it. And so that, that is, that is discussion for a whole other time. That's a whole other can of worms <laughs> and how you, how you get feedback in a, how do you get feedback when you're starting your first job? How do you get feed in a knowledge work job where mm. it, you're not going to get grades? You know, you get a performance review and even performance reviews aren't that useful for this kind of thing. You know, how do you, how do you know you're doing well? How do you ask the right questions of your manager when you have a regular one-on-one with them to say, Hey, not how am I doing, not grade me, but here are the expectations you had. Am I living, you know, am I doing those expectations? Can yeah. you give me any feed? Can you give me any feedback on what you're doing? There's no shame in asking for feedback. In fact, you have to ask for feedback. Right. That's the only, that's the only way you're going to get better. You're going to get better sooner. Um, but realize that I know that when I started this job, even as a highly senior person, it was generally expected I was going to take several months to come up to speed. Even knowing as much as I knew about the organization, the technical platform, networking in general, what have you, just to get everything in my head about the complexities of my job, which are now um, where I'm, I think, eight or nine months into this new job, are now basically second nature to me in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that counts for a lot, too. And you're like, why? Do, imagine if I was like that on day one. It's like, yeah, but you couldn't have possibly been like that on day one. Yeah. And just understand that you're going to look back on yourself six, nine months from now and go, not, oh my God, what an idiot I was. Um, But instead of, I totally understand how I got there now. Right. And if you can say that, you're in really good shape. Do you, 
would you like to do a follow-up conversation at some point about feedback? Sure, I'd be glad to. Awesome. Yeah, I think that would be really helpful. I know a lot of people probably have questions about that. Mm-hmm. We are we're closing in on two hours here, so it's probably <laughs> a pretty good time to, to wrap this one up. But, dude, this has been an awesome conversation. I think a lot of people are going to find it really enjoyable. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, of course, this is, this has been, this has been really awesome. It's been great talking with about all this stuff and I can't, can't, can't wait to see how it all turns out. For sure. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this whole conversation. If you've made it this far, I'm not going to prolong it any more, but hopefully you enjoyed it. You can find those show notes once again, CIGpodcast.com, episode 86. If you want to find my favorite resources for being a better college student or it, making your college experience easier, collegeinfogeek.com slash resources is the place you should go. And uh, yeah, just let me know what you thought of the episode. If you've listened this long, I assume that you somewhat enjoyed it. So thanks for listening and I'll see you in next week's episode. Stay cute.